Hello, this is a Science Set Free podcast with myself, Mark Vernon, and Rupert Sheldrake. Hi, Rupert. Hello, Mark. Rupert, I wonder today whether we might tackle um, a person who, in some ways, we've uh, looked at indirectly a few times when we've talked about Christianity, um, because we're both Christians, both churchgoers, and get a lot from that tradition. Um, but is the person of Jesus? Who do we think Jesus is or was? Um, and I wonder whether uh, an interesting way into this um, would be to ask um, what Jesus signifies in the history, the evolution of religions. You know, he appears at a particular point in time and Christianity makes a lot of um, the historicity um, of Christianity that is definitely something happened at a particular time and place, um, but that has meaning for us all um, still now. So to tease out what um, that meaning might be. Um, and as a sort of start of a 10, um, mm. uh, I think that I'm increasingly going off the idea, which I think is mainstream in Western churches, that Jesus saves us, to use the you know common phrase, that somehow um, Jesus um, was a sort of sacrifice that um, appeases God in some way and takes away our sins, therefore. Um, I was reading the other day, actually, that apparently this wasn't such a common idea in the first millennium of Christianity, but that particularly starts to be developed in the second millennium and then particularly at the Reformation. Um, you know, so the earliest representations of Jesus aren't, for example, the figure of someone on a cross. Um, they're more like a good shepherd in a field or something like that. Mm. Um, but what I wonder is whether Jesus um, uh, and the notion of incarnation particularly is more important um, and that, um, as we've talked about previously, actually, that Jesus's significance at a particular moment in history is because of a developing sense of individuality amongst people. You know, so someone like Socrates in the ancient Greek world, we remember as an as an inspiring individual. But the what became a real challenge was how, as individuals, people might experience themselves as connected with the gods. And then you know, when monotheism emerges with, with God um, in God's self. And that Jesus becomes such a pivotal figure because Jesus was a person who knew himself both to be fully human, a real individual in our sense, but also as someone who um, identified with the logos, with um, the divine principle in nature, in the cosmos. Um, so the incarnational side of Christianity starts to matter to me a lot more um, than the the soteriological side, you know, the kind of being saved side. Mm. Um, and Jesus speaks to me more powerfully in that way. Um, you know, it's a bit like a Buddha. A Buddhist might go into a shrine room and bow to the Buddha because they see in the figure of the Buddha um, the Buddha part of themselves that they aspire to nurture um, and um, uh, to bring to you know to greater actuality so too um i think the figure of jesus um speaks to me more as the kind of christ figure within me that i aspire as it were to um be more as christ was in the sense of knowing myself as a full individual but also um knowing god in the way that he could call god father something like that well i, I think that's very interesting i mean i think something rather similar um I mean, in the Eastern Church, and probably it follows on from the early Church, uh, the main emphasis about Jesus is the principle of theosis, how humans can become divine. Jesus pro provides a way in which a human becomes divine. 
opening way for other humans to become more divine, becoming godlike. It's the deification of humanity. And in Eastern Orthodox churches, you hardly ever see crucifixes. Um, it's usually Christ in glory um, that's represented in, in uh, the risen, ascended Christ. Um, and this was brought home to me very clearly when I, I went to Jerusalem a couple of years ago on a pilgrimage. And the group I was with was taken into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre by the Greek Orthodox Bishop of Jerusalem, who is a friend of the person leading our group. And there we were at the, the tomb, the tomb of Jesus, um, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And he said, you know, you call it the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. We call it the Church of the Resurrection. And so the... You know, the, the Western Church emphasizes the death. Uh, they emphasize the life, uh, the, the coming to life with this transcended, this transcended, transformed life of the resurrected Christ. Um, I think that the idea of a saviour is very, very hard to grasp in modern terms because, first of all, most people don't necessarily see that they need saving in the first place. Um, it's rather a stretch to think exactly why do I need and saving from what. It's it is possible to understand it, but it's not very easy. It's not natural to most modern people to think that way. Yeah, I think particularly what's difficult is not the idea that I don't have faults. You know, that's pretty easy to discover of oneself. Um, but it's the idea that a god somehow needs appeasing for these faults. That kind of sacrificial idea. You know, that, I think that's what it feels. Yes, what I does think, it make God out to be? You know. Well, I think you see. I, I, I've been thinking about this in in evolutionary terms. Um, I find looking at religious practices in evolutionary terms is quite helpful. And if you look at this in terms of predator prey relationships, um, gods on the whole tend to be predicted, portrayed as carnivorous predators. You know, eagles, lions and so forth. And, you know, in the story of Cain and Abel in the Old Testament, Cain is the cultivator of fields and makes an offering to God of crops. Abel is a herder of sheep and makes an offering to God of meat. And God accepts the offering of meat and scorns the offering of vegetables and, and plants. That's fascinating. <laughs> and, um, and then Cain's so jealous of Abel, he kills him. And it's the first fratric. These are the sons of Adam and Eve. The first one is a herder, the others are. It's like the agricultural revolution. Basically, the story the Garden of Eden is a hunter gatherer world. They live in a garden. They're not toiling by digging, you know, they're not digging the land. They're not cultivating the land. The Garden of Eden provides. Admittedly, it's portrayed as a vegetarian Garden of Eden. Um, but then they're driven out of the hunter-gatherer world of living in this primal paradise. And their two sons, one becomes, the two aspects of the Neolithic revolution, one becomes a herder of cattle, a domesticator of cattle, of, of animals, and the other becomes a cultivator of the ground. And in these early societies, the herders lived a different lifestyle from the cultivators because they moved with their flocks, and the early Jewish patriarchs are all herders moving with flocks. Yeah. And the imagery of Judaism is, is torn, really, between these, because after they moved into the Promised Land, then they became agriculturalists. But they're primarily flock 
they have flocks of sheep. And Jesus is portrayed as a shepherd, and there's a lot of this imagery of herding. Anyway, they, one of the things about the uh, animals that are prey animals in relation to predators is that if you have a flock of antelopes and a herd of antelopes in Africa hunted by lions, the lions follow the herd and they pick out the one that's weakest or on the margins or, or, or most vulnerable or sick or something. They kill that animal and then they eat it. They've got their dinner. And at that stage, the rest of the herd relax and many of them just stand around and they can even watch the lions eating that animal. So they know they're not in danger anymore. One has died for the sake of the rest. This is a very, very fundamental pattern in, in predator-prey relationships. And um, because predators don't just indiscriminately kill for the sake of killing. I mean, modern foxes might do when they come across a run full of hens. But in, in the natural conditions, they kill what they need when they need it. And they only need one animal for a meal. Um, so this builds up this thing that the uh, one dies for the sake of the rest. And um, often the one that dies for the sake of the rest is, is a young male. In herds of baboons, um, as they move uh, through dangerous territory, you know, where they can be attacked by hyenas or other, or other predators, very often uh, any baboon that falls behind through injury, they'll struggle desperately to keep up with the others. If, if they fall behind, they're dead. Um, but the herd, as they, as they move, the young males protect the group by taking up the flank positions. If a predator attacks, the young males will try to fight it off. Something like 30% of the young males die protecting the rest of the, the group. Mm. Um, so there's a tremendous attrition of young males in, in primate, primate societies. Um, so the idea that one dies for the sake of the rest is deeply biological. Um, and so we get this in myths like the dragon threatens the whole society, so the king has to offer his daughter to the dragon, and then St. George comes along and kills the dragon and rescues the daughter. But those stories about every year the dragon has to have this sacrifice is he again is playing into this archetype. And our ancestors were, you know, as Barbara Ehrenreich says in one of her books, Blood Rights, it's a very interesting book, I think, um, that we've got used to the idea from museum dioramas of man the hunter striding out onto the savannah. But actually, um, for most of human history, it was much more man the hunted that humans were pretty defenseless in relation to saber-toothed tigers, lions, leopards, and so forth. Um, and even today, the nightmares of young children are about being chased and devoured by wild animals, even though that's a totally unrealistic fear for a modern urban child. That's what they dream about, and that's what their nightmares are about. Yeah. Um, so this pattern of one dying for the sake of the other, O Lamb of God, that takes away the sins of the world. You see, it's built into the Jewish tradition too, because you have the scapegoat, scapegoat, which is sacrificed for the others. And in the story of the Passover, you have the idea that the Paschal lamb is sacrificed to save the Jews, but not the Egyptians. And of course, it goes right back to Abraham and Isaac, where there's a clear substitution of human sacrifice of the son Isaac 
uh, with animal sacrifice, uh, a, a ram. Um, so this idea of sacrifice as appeasing potential predators and one dying for the others is very, very archetypal. So I wonder where um, the difference is now. You know, is it perhaps um, that we don't regard ourselves as herd animals so much anymore? Maybe because we value individuality, you know, in a way that... Um, so it's still there in our kind of collective consciousness, um, but that we feel we need a different way of understanding Jesus. Um, because whilst we can feel it there in the past, it, it maybe isn't so present for us now. Is that how... That you, uh, you know, you don't, how would you understand, say, my dis-ease with um, the idea of sacrifice and one dying for the many and God as a predator God and, well, and that I think kind of it's thing. still, I think we've still got it with the cult of martyrs. You know, that whenever anyone's, in, say someone's killed, the people who are killed by terrorists, there's the idea that there but for the grace of God go I, and there's a sense in which they've died for us, and there's a huge outpouring of public grief when this happens. Yeah. Um, so I think the archetype is still quite active in, in our society. And, so, you know, and when martyrs, people are martyred for a cause, it's, I mean, it's a very powerful archetype in, in Islamic terrorism, apart from anything else. So, yeah, so, so would, a, would a better way of putting it then be to understand that maybe there are different archetypes that it could accrue around the figure of Jesus? Yes. And one would be the sacrifice archetype, but maybe yes. another one would be... Uh, more evolution of consciousness kind of archetype. Yes. Because um, as you were talking, actually, uh, another um, Eastern way of thinking about Jesus came to my mind, not Greek Orthodox or not Orthodox, but an Indian way of thinking about things. And I remember you introducing me once to um, the head of uh, what was B. Griffiths's ashram, Father mm. John. Mm. Um, brother, brother, brother Martin. Brother Martin, mm. yeah. Thank you, Brother Martin. And... Um, uh, his idea that um, Jesus's life represented different realizations of consciousness, um, which appealed to me a lot, actually, and yes. felt more incarnational. But I guess would be just using a different kind of archetypal figuration of things. I think the point is that Jesus is becomes the focus of many different archetypes, and you know, one of them is the Son archetype. I mean, the beloved Son. Um, as part of the divine nature, as 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 the kind of represent as a kind of a human form of God, that's a kind of son archetype, and and the relation between Jesus and God, seen as a father, is is one of love between a parental parent child love. Then there's the sacrifice archetype. Then there's the evolutionary archetype, the the um, development of human consciousness, and that's the one that's most in accordance with sort of Eastern-type philosophies, because they're about consciousness rising to different levels. And I think one of the, the other archetypal things is in, in the Christian message is the conquest of death, um, because the, an important part of the Christian view of Jesus is that Jesus opened a pathway through death, um, through the crucifixion, not in this case, seen primarily as a sacrificial you know, for the sins of the whole world, but as going through death consciously in, a, in an extraordinary way, the way Jesus was able to pass through death, retain his consciousness, and have a continuity of consciousness uh, which goes beyond death um, and which is absorbed into the divine being after death. 
opens a pathway which we can follow not just through achieving high levels of consciousness while we're alive, but when we die as well, and that he's therefore like a soul guide for us. The, the Greeks had the idea of psychopomps or soul guides, and Jesus is like a, a, opens the way uh, for our journey after death. And that, I think, is a very key part of the Christian vision. Yeah, I, actually, funny enough, I was uh, looking at um, St. Athanasius's treatise on the Incarnation just recently, which is a fantastic read, actually. It's very uh, uh, clear and uh, amazing thing to read. Um, but for him, um, a big part of the significance of Jesus is Jesus um, has uh, destroyed death, as he puts it. Um, but I think what you have to understand, what I was grappling with and uh, what made me uh, think about this was that um, I think death at that time wasn't just kind of annihilation as if you just uh, stopped uh, existing and that was it. Um, death was a kind of transition into a sort of shadowy half-life. Yes. It's very interesting that um, Hades and Sheol, the Jewish and the Greek words, are more or less interchangeable, even in the New Testament, actually. Um, and there would seem to be a kind of common idea, certainly around the Mediterranean, um, that to die wasn't to cease to exist, but was to kind of flitter away. And that what, as you're saying, what uh, Athanasius uh um, uh, found in the person of Jesus was someone who had gone to Hades, um, you know, the, the, the harrowing of hell, as it's sometimes put, um, but and uh, restored a full life to these uh, souls that were existing in this kind of half life, yes. um, uh, and and moreover, it was a resurrected life, a kind of full spiritual life, as well as yes. um, uh, everything that we knew in embodied life. And that, that's a very different notion of resurrection, actually, isn't it? It's not like a conjuring trick with bones, as no. David Jenkins once put it. It really is about moving through life and death into a fuller life. Yes. And I think that the um, in the ancient world, there was the idea that some people did that. I mean, the idea in Egypt that the pharaohs, after death, um, through their after-death technology of mummification and so on, uh, they thought that they were projected out to the stars, particularly to the constellation of Orion, and that there was a kind of... They zoomed out of the body, as it were, into the sky. They actually went on a heavenly journey. When ordinary people went down into the earth, but a privileged few zoomed up into the sky. And in a sense, there's one way in which Jesus' death democratizes this heavenly ascent rather than descent into a shadowy underworld. Um, and makes it open to potentially everyone but the archetype is already there and of course there's a tremendous interplay of Jew Judaism and, and Egypt I mean after all there were slaves in Egypt for a long time Jesus went into Egypt soon after he was born and part of the story of Jesus's life is that he spent part of his childhood in Egypt so there's this permeation of Egyptian ideas as well as Sumerian and Babylonian ideas, but the Egyptian ones are quite important, I think. Yeah, I completely agree with that, and I think that it helps us understand the ancient Greek philosophers as well, because I think Plato is a kind of intermediary step in the move from ancient Egyptian ideas to Christi early Christian ideas, um, because I think what um, Plato uh, tried to do was um, to develop um, what had been a pharaonic practice into a philosopher's practice, um, because... Uh, as he puts many times in the dialogues, um, Socrates says that to philosophize is to learn how to die. Um, this becomes quite a, a regular trope, actually, mm. throughout the history of Western philosophy. But I think what it meant then was that um, you uh, would um, both undergo um, an experience of death in this life um, 
but also that um, you would be awakened to um, the quality of eternity um, that surround us as well in this life um, through uh, various practices. And uh, there's a tradition, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's right as well, actually, that Plato, after the death of Socrates, went to Egypt, um, experienced what were um, the Egyptian initiation rites, which by that stage in the history of ancient Egypt had become fairly widespread. As long as you had some means, you could, as it were, undergo what two or three thousand years earlier had been just the exclusive rite of the pharaoh. Hmm. Um, but realised that they needed, um, as it were, remaking for the world in which he lived, you know, 400 or so years before Christ. Um, but then this was an important step to the, when the early Christians come along and think what on earth has happened with this life, death and resurrection of Jesus. They can rethink it and reconceive it and understand what's been happening Mm. Um, uh, but as you say, it's, it, it makes it available for all and everybody in the. I think that's probably one of the unique contributions of Christianity. Actually, is yes. that it had made available to everybody what had been a kind of mystical journey that had still been reserved for the relative elite. Yes. Um, in the in say the ancient Greek world. And I think one other archetype of Jesus. I mean, there are probably many others, but one other one that I find particularly important is is the the, the social reformer. The, I mean. There's a level at which Jesus can be appreciated and is appreciated by secular humanists. You know, he was an ethical teacher with great ethical teachings that are important for us all and shaped our entire civilization, even in its secular humanist form. Um, But as an ethical teacher, what Jesus was was a kind of figure of a disruptive and rebellious figure. He was someone who went against the official norms of the teachings of the established religion and 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 was a kind of rebel, a, a heretic, a rebel, a, a revolutionary in that sense, not a violent revolutionary, but um, a highly disruptive figure. Um, and I think that that's built attention into the whole of Christianity ever since, because anyone, uh, there's a sense in which, especially after becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire, Christianity becomes an established religion with bishops and cathedrals and and churches and hierarchies and all the rest of it, and schools and institutions and stuff. Uh, but there's at the core of it is the figure of Jesus, who's a kind of anti-establishment figure. And throughout the whole of human history, I mean the whole of Christian history, I mean, there's been a series of anti-establishment movements within Christianity, which can always call upon the example of Jesus. And it puts the uh, official establishment in a very difficult position because they can't deny that Jesus was an anti-establishment figure. It's so clearly there in the Gospels. Um, but um, they are now kind of establishment. And you know, the Franciscans were one of these movements in the Middle Ages. There was a whole series of them. The Protestant Reformation, in some ways, tapped into this. And there's a lot about Protestantism that looks at that side of Jesus. And... I myself, when I'm, as you know, have problems with the science establishment, um, you know, like anyone like me who's got, has problems with their, their, their particular establishment, uh, Jesus is a kind of role model of, uh, of a kind of anti-establishment figure who blazed a completely new trail. Um, and that, again, is a different kind of archetype from all the other ones we've been discussing. Yeah, that's fascinating. It opens up a new charism, a new source of insight and energy and, and vitality. And yes. Things. You remind me as well of what um, I remember Brother Martin saying, was that if Jesus had gone to India 
and said that he was God, everyone would have gone, okay, fine. And he wouldn't say no one had battered an eyelids. But if Jesus had gone to India and said everybody's equal, i.e. challenging the old caste system, then he would have really got into trouble. So that seems to be that archetype of Jesus speaking. Yes, exactly. Exactly. The Indians would have no problem at all with the idea of Jesus being avatar of God. The problem the Christian missionaries had when they were trying to evangelize in India was not in persuading Indians that Jesus was an avatar of God. They instantly accepted that. Um, The problem they had was when they said he was the only one. Then, then they got into real trouble. They said, oh, no, no, Krishna is there, and Vishnu has many avatars, and Buddha is one, and so on. Uh, so uh, this kind of inclusiveness of Hinduism um, uh, was the problem that the missionaries had. And I guess that, that's the kind of, that is the historical bit in Christianity, that it, uh, it very clearly has a sense that God has done something at a particular time that's particularly significant, as it were, a pivotal moment. Yes. Yeah. It's not just a kind of mythic kind of incarnation it's it's something in history and that is of course one another great part of the judeo-christian tradition which makes it different from all other traditions really except perhaps islam which is an offshoot of it which is that um the the that god is acting in history in other civilizations god is in a way beyond time and history is cyclical so but the idea that there's a kind of evolutionary process in history and that this is coming about through a divine interaction with the historical process is a uniquely Judeo-Christian insight. And it's one which has totally transformed the modern world because it ultimately, in its secularized form, leads to the idea of progress and evolution. And that's now the standard view of every society in the world. They're all into development, progress... And anyone who's got a smartphone in any part of the world or who knows about jet planes or something realizes we're living in an era that's never happened before. Something really new is happening, that it's not just an eternal recurrence. And almost all antique, archaic models of history were of recurrence. And so Jesus is very much uh, a propelling force of this other archetype of uh, divine interaction with history and us being involved in a historical process. That's fascinating. So there's a li- linear archetype of time as well as a cyclical archetype of time. That, yes. That are brought into both into play. Yes. Well, you know, that was really fascinating. I hadn't thought when I began my question, who was Jesus thinking about in archetypal terms at all, actually. So that's been really illuminating and, uh, and fascinating as well. Much more flexible, I think, in relation to thinking about our Christian tradition. I think so. And it means that for different people, different aspects of Jesus, um, uh, become important but it doesn't mean that the others are wrong uh, it just means that someone as universally appealing as jesus or it has these many archetypal roles and i dare say the historical jesus would not as he was going about his daily life in 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 palestine was not necessarily thinking consciously about all these archetypes um but there i think there are all ways in which we can see jesus today yeah, and, I, I, they're all meaningful too. Yeah, I, th- I feel like uh, this is what happens if someone lives fully, but also particularly that they release all sorts of universal possibilities around them, even though they're living a particular life at a particular time and place as well. Well, look, thanks very much. Maybe that's a Thank good point to finish. And yes. uh, um, I really appreciated that.